In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning, two of our readings address hardened hearts and complacency. Amos's prophetic witness is largely about inequality and disobedience, this passage being no exception. The wealthy among the people of God had grown richer and richer and were enjoying their spoils, but they were blind to the problems around them. Amos says that they were not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. And because of this blindness, they would be the first to go into exile, the rich and privileged who enjoyed their wealth while the poor went into ruin would be the very first to encounter the punishment that generations and generations of apostasy had stored up. And Jesus' parable has a similar warning. It features a rich man who had a life of luxury, dressed in fine linens and eating delicious meals, and a poor man just outside his gates, suffering, who wished just to have the scraps from the table. And after dying, they find themselves in very different places. We see this sort of reversal of rich and poor all over Luke's gospel. But the rich man who is in anguish isn't allowed to send someone to warn his brothers so that they could escape the same fate. Why? Well, Jesus says because, or excuse me, Abraham says, if his brothers wouldn't listen to the prophets and Moses, they would, wouldn't even listen to someone who came back from the dead. Well, what did Moses and the prophets say? We've already heard from Amos, a prophet, and the law of Moses sets up Israelite society with measures to ensure that outcasts, the poor, and the immigrant were all helped out of their suffering. Not just given the opportunity, but in fact helped out of their suffering. Moses and the prophets made it clear that for the rich man to enjoy his life while Lazarus suffered outside his walls was, in fact, outside the bounds of faithful living. Now, when I first looked at these readings, I imagined that I was going to be preaching yet another sermon on wealth. Uh, I'm not going to preach that sermon today. If you want to hear a biblical perspective on economics, go back and listen to Father Martin's sermon from last week. It's all there, and it's pretty clear. I'm going to talk about inequality in some other terms, because there are other ways in which people experience inequality beyond bank accounts and liquid assets. It comes in many forms. As an example, when I was in high school, I liked to be a public nuisance. I never wanted to actually hurt anyone or cause property damage, but I like to be obnoxious, to be loud in public places, to sort of skirt the edge of, I don't know, doing something mildly criminal. As a result, I did have one run-in with the police. After church one week, a friend and I were filming a video for our youth group and doing donuts in the church parking lot. Uh, as a brief footnote, youth, please do not do donuts in the church parking lot. I've done my part there. The police saw us, came and stopped us, and asked us whether or not we were allowed to be there. It was Sunday afternoon, maybe 3 p.m., uh, so no one was there at the church other than us. And after 15 minutes of trying to justify our antics, we eventually were able to find a custodian in the building who could vouch for us. In the conversation, the officers were condescending, and we were probably almost certainly insubordinate. But the interaction never escalated. One officer did say that if we hit a dry patch, we could have flipped our car, I'm not sure that his physics checks out, but that's the extent of our interaction. But that wasn't the experience of everybody who lived in my hometown. A friend of mine shared a story on Facebook of his run-in with the police. He was jogging home to his grandmother's house after football practice, wearing t-shirt and running shorts. An officer followed him for a little while and then stopped him and asked for ID. He had no record, no priors. He was 
an all-American kind of guy. He was a football player. He was in the show choir. He was well-liked by students and teachers alike. I don't think you could find anyone who had any sort of animosity towards him. The officer asked why he was running, and he laughed, not unsure of how to answer the question. The response from the officer surprised him, though. He said, do you see me effing laughing? You don't belong over here, so get to where you belong. My friend, as you may have guessed, is African-American. This week, we heard more stories in the news of encounters between African-American men and police officers that ended badly, tragically. Stories of families that have lost fathers or brothers, of four-year-old children asking where their dad is, videos and more videos that are going to run on repeat on Facebook feeds of a body that was full of life in one moment and slumping beside a car lifeless in the next. We've already seen variations of this same incident play out again and again and again. And again, we're going to get caught up in a flurry of evidence gathering to make any one incident the incident. Our first reaction is to find evidence to support our narrative. What can we find out about Terence Crutcher's background that shows us that he was, in fact, a bad dude? What can we find out about the officer who shot him? Is there some secret aggressive tendency that we can find that will show that she was just looking to murder someone? Now, she's been charged with first-degree manslaughter, and she'll face trial in both the court of law and the court of public opinion through Facebook posts and 24-hour news stations. And while we all focus and get caught up on this one incident or these two incidents, thousands more Lazaruses sit outside our gates. Unarmed men die because they are perceived to have been a threat, and when this happens, we must mourn. Our hearts must instantly break because another person bearing the image of God is no longer with us. Whether or not we decide in our own minds and our own impeccable ability to assess the situation, whether or not there was justification for any one officer's actions, whether there was a truly perceived credible threat, someone is now dead. And in many cases, someone who did not have any weapon, who had no ill intent, who fidgeted at the wrong time, is dead. And a community of people in this country will continue to feel marginalized and ostracized as if they live on the outside of the gates of society. There's something I think we can notice when we look at the biblical mandate for helping the poor. There are no qualifications. There are no background checks, no drug tests, no bootstraps by which they must pull themselves up before they deserve aid. The poor are to be helped simply because they are poor. And the weak are to be strengthened simply because they are weak. Grace is the model. And grace is based on the fact that not only have we not earned God's favor, but we have earned the very opposite of God's favor. And so these people who live in marginalized communities have to be ministered to. The gospel compels us to do this. And the events of this week are part of a larger problem. The problem being that if you are a minority in this country, you are put at all sorts of disadvantages. Now when I say that, you may hear it and balk. You may think that I've bought into some sort of false narrative spun by people who have political agendas. And I might agree with you if it weren't for the remarkably widespread prevalence of stories from people of color in our country that sound eerily similar. The reason you may have guessed that my friend in high school is not white is because you've probably heard a similar story. Maybe you heard the story of the opera singer who, when he was a teenager, looking through classical CDs at the mall, was kicked out because some other young boys were in a fight and his skin color happened to be the same as them and mall security decided, 
we'll just kick everybody out at the same time. Maybe you read stories a year ago in the Wheaton Record of Wheaton College students who went dumpster diving with white classmates. The black ones seemed to be the only ones questioned by police. Maybe you read the essay written by an immigrant from Jamaica who figured out easy rules for walking through the incredibly dangerous streets of Kingston, but had to learn entirely new rules when he moved to the States, not walking too close to white women, not jogging in New York, because if he did, someone might turn around and punch him because they were uncomfortable by his rapid movement. Maybe you've read studies that show that people with names like Jose can get far more callbacks on their resumes if they drop that S and change their name to Joe. There's a reason for people of color to be anxious. White supremacist groups have found this most recent political climate one of encouragement and have decided to become more outspoken. From congressional candidates who believe in a biblical warrant for segregation and post billboards reading, Make America White Again, to communities across the country that have been waking up to missives from the KKK reading, you can sleep tonight knowing that the Klan is awake. If you are willing to listen, there are so many stories of people of color who have to live their lives with the specter of racism haunting them at every turn. And so first and foremost, we must pray that God would show us where we might be guilty of this sin. Racism is more than joining the Klan or overtly claiming that your race is the best. It's this insidious notion that someone who looks different than you is different than you. That they possess less ability to be bearers of God's image. That somehow, because of the color of their skin, we can make lots of assumptions about them. And these prejudices that we subconsciously hold may be keeping us from living out what God calls us to do through the law, the prophets, and even from his own son. But beyond that, it doesn't matter if you're the one treating people differently or not. It matters that they are treated differently and that many of us discredit or silence their voice. Statistically, the people most likely to not believe that being a minority causes a sort of disadvantage for you in this country, statistically, white evangelicals are highest among those who silence that voice, who don't believe it. The people of Israel to whom Amos spoke and the rich man may or may not have known all about the problems of the marginalized. But I think that God looks at both ignorance and indifference as failures to be the kind of people who live the life of the kingdom that is to come. We can see these problems when we allow ourselves to listen to the stories of other people. And listening is the first step in understanding that other people don't have the same experiences that we do, even when they grow up in the same place at the same time going to the same high school that we did. And so I pray that we listen, but beyond that, that we would be moved to act. There are real, deep, systemic problems that exist under the surface in our country, meaning that everybody does not have equal access to resources, resources both financial, social, and otherwise, resources that allow many of us to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness without anyone second-guessing it because of where we were born or who we were born to. And so may we who have access to resources and privilege be, as Paul wrote, rich in good works, generous, ready to share, storing up for ourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of the life that really is life. And then we must look for change. When it comes to law enforcement, the answer isn't simply vilification. The officers I know are good and honest people who I believe perform their duty honorably. And let's get one thing straight. One of the cruelest ironies of the shooting of the police officers in Dallas is that that department was a particularly shining example of community policing, of engagement with the community, 
of open dialogue, bringing officers and those whom they serve together. Some of those officers died protecting the peaceful protesters that gathered that day, putting themselves in the line of fire. But we know that is not every story and that is not every department. And so we in the church whose vision of the kingdom is that every nation, every race has remarkable value because of the Imago Dei, the image of God that's in every person's being. We ought to be on the forefront of fostering dialogue and building bridges in our communities between the people and the officers that serve them so that no person, whether they wear a badge or not, has any fear going out into the streets. And beyond that, we must, must speak out against racism when we see it. We must start to make the church a safe place When the Bible talks about the kingdom that is to come, think about the images. It's the nations coming together. It's everyone coming, offering what they have to the king. This is the vision that must inspire our actions, where everyone, regardless of race, gender, economic status, none of these things are a bar from fully living out a kingdom life. Now, if you think I'm wrong, shoot me an email. Let me take you out for coffee. Because if I'm wrong then maybe this sermon will go down as Father Andrew's bleeding heart getting in the way of good sense and interpretation. But if I'm right, and there are people to whom we are ignoring their pain and suffering, and our indifference and our ignorance is allowing hurt to continue, then there's an entire community of Lazaruses suffering outside of our gates, and the Old and New Testaments witness against our indifference while we sit at table and eat sumptuously. And if that is true, may God have mercy on us all. Amen.